The Supreme Court of Canada recently upheld the federal government's carbon pricing scheme, striking down challenges from three provinces. While the majority of justices felt the plan was in the national concern, those in opposition felt it stepped into provincial jurisdiction and, quote, rejects the Constitution and rewrites the rules of Confederation. I'm Dave Breckenridge, and this is 10-3. Columnist Sean Spear joins me to discuss the significance of the minority opinion on the court, the justice who penned it, and what it could mean for the conservative legal movement in Canada and future debates over the powers of the federal government. Don't forget you can find the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about us. So Sean, the Supreme Court of Canada recently ruled on the Liberal government's price on carbon or the carbon tax. You know how you define it. It depends on who you ask. But... What was it that they were ruling on, and how did the case wind up at the top court? Well, as your listeners will know, Dave, uh, the Trudeau government came to office in 2015 with a commitment to establish a national framework for a carbon tax. But it went about it in a kind of unique way. There's no question, Dave, that the federal government has broad taxation powers, and had the Trudeau government went ahead and established a national carbon tax that was standardized across provinces, where there really wouldn't have been much constitutional debate. But instead, uh, and this is a bit wonky, so you'll have to bear with me, they established what what came to be known as a federal backstop. In effect, what they were saying was, if provinces enacted carbon pricing regimes that conform to particular conditions outlined in the federal framework, then the federal government wouldn't go ahead and impose a carbon tax. In effect, Mm -hmm. defer to the provinces. And it's it's that design that differentiated between compliant provinces and non-compliant provinces That was the subject of constitutional debate. Was that permitted under federal powers, and in particular, this doctrine of national concern? And so this legislation has been making its way through provincial courts for some time, subject to challenges by the governments of Alberta, Ontario, and Saskatchewan. And the decision last week represented the kind of culmination of this process of litigation to ultimately determine whether Ottawa's sort of novel approach to carbon taxation was indeed constitutional. And so the court ruled that, in fact, it was constitutional, despite concerns that it essentially intruded on provincial powers. And because the fact that certain provinces had come up with their own plans, that they basically said, hey, this is our sandbox, get out. That's right. What's fascinating, Dave, is that in the lead up to the Supreme Court of Canada decision, we had had split decisions at provincial courts of appeal. So the courts of Ontario and Saskatchewan affirmed the constitutionality of the Trudeau government's plan. But even in those cases, there were some judges who ruled against it. The court of appeal in Alberta, uh, a majority of its members actually ruled that the tax was unconstitutional. So it all ended up at the Supreme Court to kind of work this out. And what we had, it was a 6-3 decision. So six of nine justices ultimately ruled that the federal framework that the drove government backstop was indeed constitutional. And even amongst those six, there were different points of emphasis or, or different arguments made in the judgments. But, you know, that was enough, a majority of members, to affirm the constitutionally attacks. And so now, all things being equal, provincial governments will have to conform going forward. 
you know, as you say, it was a 6-3 majority, and the majority decided this was dealing with a matter of national concern or in the national interest, and so the government did have constitutional authority to make rules or make legislation based on that. But looking at the dissenting opinion, you know, we had three justices who were opposed to this. You know, what was the basis for their argument? Or who wrote the dissenting opinion and what was the basis for that opinion? As you say, David, three justices broke ranks with the majority and argued in three separate dissents that the tax ought to be viewed, at least as it, it was designed in the federal law, as unconstitutional. The different justices uh, emphasized different points, but I think Justice Russell Brown was the one who most directly tackled this question of the division of powers and whether the majority judgment, as you say, ruled that the tax could be imposed under the doctrine of national concern, represented a significant overreach on the part of federal power vis-a-vis the provinces. And, And Brown argues that it potentially opens the door for significant federal intrusion going forward. He, in effect, in a kind of flowery passage in his dissent, says that this amounts to a kind of a implicit rewriting of the Canadian Constitution. What is the significance of that opinion, looking more broadly at Canadian politics, Canadian legislation, and, and jurisprudence? Like, what makes a dissent like that significant? A couple of things, I think, and this is a subject of all of my wrote on this particular decision, but uh, on Justice Brown uh, more generally, there is, I think it's fair to say, a kind of prevailing view in the world of legal scholarship and Canadian jurisprudence that tilts in sort of a progressive direction that has a kind of expansive view of the role of the courts and subscribes to what might be described sometimes as a sort of living tree conception of the Constitution, the idea that the Constitution isn't fixed. It's a subject of kind of evolution, and it's ultimately the role of judges to outline how the different provisions or, or rights in the Constitution are evolving. And I think what makes Brown interesting, not just in this decision, but generally, is he's sort of pushing back gently but firmly against that legal consensus. And I think what we see in this particular dissent is him staking out a kind of different position, different terrain in the world of Canadian jurisprudence and legal scholarship. And that's important, I think, Dave, for those who are maybe going through law school or maybe young lawyers to have a kind of intellectual alternative to the uh, kind of prevailing orthodoxy that one finds in law schools and indeed on our court. Justice Brown has made a bit of a name for himself in the court with this opinion, you know, for Canadians who aren't familiar, and I I imagine that's a lot of people because I don't think people pay as much attention to the machinations of our Supreme Court as, say, in the U.S. What's his background and and how did he come to wind up on the Supreme Court? He was appointed by the Harper government in late 2015. In fact, it's one of the final acts of the Harper government before it was defeated in in the 2015 election campaign. Mm -hmm. He came by way of University of Alberta Law School, where he distinguish himself as a legal scholar, and then, you know, made his way through the judicial pipeline ultimately to the Supreme Court in 2015. And I think what makes him different is not just that he diverges in some ways from, you know, the conventional judicial philosophy that I referred to earlier, but that he, he seems prepared to own that. We tend to have a great deal of conformity in our world of legal scholarship and on how judges think about their role and uh, vis-a-vis the legislature and their role vis-a-vis the Constitution. And I think what makes 
Brown such an interesting character and the reason I wrote a column about him is he represents a, a different perspective and one that I think is finding a lot of resonance, particularly among young law students and young lawyers across the country. What kind of judge is he or what serves as the backbone of his belief or his philosophy when it comes to the courts and the law? If you had to put it as kind of plainly as you could, I think he has a kind of reserved view about the role of the judiciary, that he would be more discomforted than many others on the Supreme Court about legislating from the bench, as it's often described. He takes a view about uh, the interpretation of the Constitution that aims to limit the role of judges in expanding rights and, and interpretations of the Constitution and the Charter. So there's a tendency in the world of judicial philosophical debate about you know whether someone's a r- originalist or other descriptions. That's beyond, I think, my place to evaluate. But I think it is fair to say, and in fact, Justice Brown in different times in his life has, has characterized himself as a as a small seat conservative. And, you know, I think that's something that distinguishes him from other judges on the Supreme Court and indeed other judges across the Canadian judiciary. He's not without controversy. I recall when he was appointed to the court, there was concerns about some of his blog posts when he was a judge in Alberta. What's the background on that? Well, it's a good reminder if you're intending to enter public life, you know, you have to be careful about the things you do in your earlier life. Uh, (laughs) As you say, uh, Justice Brown, as a private citizen, contributed to a blog in the early 2000s where he expressed himself on matters of politics, matters of the Constitution, even kind of matters of society and culture. And some of those posts were unearthed as he made his way through the appointment process. You know, I think in some ways it reinforces the extent to which his philosophical and ideological perspective would deviate from kind of conventional progressive views that one often finds in the world of law schools and and on the judiciary. I don't think there was anything in those posts that were disqualifying by any means, but they, they certainly are different than conventional views in Canadian legal thought. Are there any other dissenting opinions he's written that have kind of caught the public attention or potentially have risen to the same level as his dissent on the carbon tax ruling? I think his decision, his dissent, um, Dave, in the case involving Trinity Western Law School, listeners may be familiar with the case. It, you know, it rested on whether the school's law students would be accredited by provincial law bodies, even though the school required students to sign a covenant that which precluded sexual activity out, outside of heterosexual marriage. And, mm-hmm. and there was a question whether that was discriminatory against um, LGBTQ students and, and so on. And the majority in that case ruled against Trinity Western, but Justice Brown dissented and he, you know, essentially said that in a pluralistic society, religious freedom needs to be protected. And, and well, one may disagree with Trinity Western, a, a private Christian college positions on these matters, there ought to be protected under a kind of expansive conception of religious freedom. I think, you know, it's another example where Justice Brown's small C conservative philosophy expresses itself. So we have a justice on the Supreme Court, a believer in kind of expansive freedom of religion, a believer in the independence of the provinces from interference by the federal government. Does this potentially set up other divisions on the court on other issues? 
I think it's certainly possible. You know, but the one thing I'd say, and, and, and as I wrote the piece, you know, it's worth emphasizing that I, you know, I don't purport to be a nuanced legal scholar. I'm a mm-hmm. column writer, and I spoke to some legal scholars and lawyers in producing the piece. And, you know, one thing it was emphasized to me is that, well, Brown hasn't been afraid to dissent in some of these high-profile cases and, you know, affirmed a, a kind of small-c conservative judicial philosophy. One of his strengths since he's been on the court is that he's been able to bring other justices to his opinion. Um, and so there's several cases where he's um, actually held the pen on majority decisions. So, you know, I think by staking out these views and perspectives, he's both signaling to law students and, and lawyers that one can have a different conception of the role of courts and a different understanding of its role with respect to the, the Constitution and Charter. But he's also been able to bring his colleagues along in some cases. So, you know, I, the reason I really wrote the piece, Dave, is because I think he's an interesting figure and, and one that, you know, as you say, Canadians might not know that much about. But I think we will play a significant role going forward in the world of Canadian policy and and law and and politics. In the U.S., the conservative legal movement is tied up in social issues. You know, there's always the question of how would a justice vote on Roe v. Wade relating to abortion and issues like gay marriage. Does it look similar in Canada or is it more focused on other areas of the law and where our country is at? I'll say a couple of things in response to this question. The first is, you know, there's a tendency, you know, to say that the U.S. court is heavily politicized because there are these, you know, multitude of perspectives or competing views, you know, on the left and right. And, you know, I think there's a tendency on the part of Canadians to look at that and say, well, we, you know, we don't want that in Canada. We don't want that kind of politicization. The truth is our courts are politicized. The, the difference is there's just sort of one perspective. Mm-hmm. There's a, essentially a kind of uniform progressive view that pervades the Canadian judiciary. So it's not that we're less political. It's just that there's not competing views. And, you know, I think Justice Brown represents a, a kind of challenge to this uniform progressive perspective, which has really been so dominant in the world of Canadian legal scholarship and the judiciary. So I don't think we're all that different in the United States. The, the main difference is we've not had much division because there's been such kind of overwhelming consensus. And, you know, I think if you're like me, a small C conservative, you're glad to see someone like Justice Brown sort of push back. The second answer, though, is on on your specific question. I I think your instinct is right, that we're not going to see a sudden rise of hot-button social or moral questions being heavily debated at the the Supreme Court. The last one that I can think of like that was probably the medical-assisted dying question, which was taken up several years ago. But Mm -hmm. I think instead it'll manifest itself in these questions about the division of powers and the application of the charter in different questions, including issues like religious freedom um, that are going to, I think, become even more pronounced going forward um, as our society becomes both more pluralistic and diverse on one hand and more secular on the other hand. How we reconcile those tensions will necessarily involve the court. And, you know, I think it's a healthy thing that we'll have people like Justice Brown, who are bringing a a kind of unique and different perspective to those types of questions. Do you think it's that consensus belief in Canada? Do you think that's the reason that, you know, our court, while it does make landmark decisions that get the attention of the nation, it seems overall to be kind of far less prominent in Canadian political life than the Supreme Court in the U.S. does. And 
Do you think that decisions like this and kind of a conversation around dissenting opinions or judges with different belief structures or different attitudes towards the way the Constitution should be viewed and the way that the federal government should legislate, do you think that might raise the court in people's minds and make it more prominent a part of the discussion in Canadian politics? I think that's quite possible. And I, I don't think that's unhealthy. It plays a major role in adjudicating significant economic and social and political questions. And, you know, it seems to me we ought to be paying greater attention and we ought to ensure that it doesn't succumb to this sort of conformity of views, that uh, these are difficult and nuanced questions. And, and, you know, it's only logical that we would have competing understandings of how to navigate them. And so, you know, my hope is, to be honest, is that Someone like Justice Brown can inspire others who are, you know, either lawyers or law students or legal scholars to kind of stand up and ultimately see a role for themselves in the judiciary as well. So when we look at the makeup of the bench, like you talk about a conformity of views, we've had, you know, liberal governments, conservative governments. Stephen Harper was prime minister for a decade, albeit minority governments. But why does the court look the way it does? It's a great question. I mean, it's one of the major failings, I think, of the Harper government, that it ultimately wasn't able to appoint more judges who bucked the kind of progressive consensus in the world of law and the judiciary. And the truth is, David, that, you know, oftentimes I think the Harper government felt like there were limited options available to them in terms of people to to select from because this progressive consensus is just so powerful. It, It permeates law firms, it permeates law schools, it permeates lower courts. And so there are a lot of instances where Harper appointees have proven themselves to not buck the consensus, but lean directly into it. And and this is in some ways what makes Justice Brown so unique. He was a Harper appointee who indeed has broken ranks with this overriding consensus. But, you know, the only way to really challenge it is to increase the supply of people who think differently about courts and the Constitution and and so on. And, And as I said, I hope Justice Brown can kind of help us inspire a next generation of people just like that. So if we do have a conservative prime minister in the future, he or she won't feel like they're you know, making the second best choice, that they have real legitimate options of people to appoint. Well, it is a fascinating discussion. I'm glad to see that this decision brought some of these issues to light. And I imagine it's something that Canadians will be paying closer attention to in the future. Sean, thanks for your time. Thanks so much for having me, Dave. 10-3 is produced by Sean Knox. Theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guest, Sean Spear. More from him at nationalpost.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.